You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick Community Radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds. Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sound. Higher and higher, filling it with sound. Filling it with sound. They sound quite mad, don't they? I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, preposterous. Thank you very much. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am a narrator. Voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, with your mind, and allow me to take you back and forth through time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. Today, we're going to hear an interview I did last week with Grammy Award nominated recording artist Steve Roach who is a well-known ambient, tribal, and electronic musician who has created over 150 albums in his nearly 40-year career so far. In this wonderful interview, Steve Roach talks about his creative process and about the different types of ambient, tribal, and electronic music that he's been creating over the years and what has inspired his very unique soundscapes and music that he creates. So you've been exploring and creating ambient and textured sonic landscapes and electronic music for decades. Indeed, and started, I, I would say, in what we in this world that I work in would call like the golden age of hardware, analog-based instruments, uh, meaning that the, the digital world that was coming was still hardly something we were paying attention to or even aware of in terms of computer-based instruments and, you know, all of the incredible, you know, options that that offers nowadays. But at that time, the instruments and the music that I was drawn to, they were hardware, hands-on tools that were necessary and, you know, fairly expensive back then. So you had to figure out ways for a young guy coming up to get your hands on, on these instruments that I was, you know, hearing put to use in the kind of music that 
was really lighting me up was from Europe and from Germany in particular, the early electronic music of the 70s. So I, I started directly, you know, on synthesizers in the late 70s. I had no other musical background. I, I didn't did not play other instru- any instruments, and so I was really born, you know, into making music with technology. So how did you get started doing that, and what instruments did you start with? Well, in the early days, again, the main names that people still hear is Moog and ARP, which came out of Massachusetts, the ARP synthesizer, which was used by a lot of early rock bands, The Who and Edgar Winter and Led Zeppelin and all those guys would use ARP instruments and or Moog instruments, Moog. So at that time, uh, you know, as local music shop was starting to feature those, and it was, you know, kind of a big thing to go to the store just to see them, and it was, it was so fascinating, and there was such a, you know, a romantic and exciting connection to seeing the instrument that you were hearing on a lot of the music that you were listening to. So I managed to uh, secure a very, very high-interest loan and bought my first ARP 2600 synthesizer with sequencer, which creates the repetitive patterns, an echo machine, and an art string ensemble, which was an instrument that let you play polyphonic chords with this very evocative, you know, emulating a string orchestra sound. So those were the early, you know, roots of the instruments themselves. But, you know, the whole thing that was compelling me was beyond these instruments. It was really, it was centered around the instruments, of course, but my experience of where I grew up in Southern California, and I spent a lot of time in the Southern desert regions of that area. So that from an early age, even like at 10 or 11, we, we would go on camping trips out to the desert. And so that always shaped something within me that awakened a place that was, you know, steeped in stillness and expansiveness. And there was a sound association with that or a lack of sound, a sense of like profound quietude of silence there is no real such thing as silence i would say but quiet and um the quiet between space between breath you know in an environmental sort of way so that when the instruments were there and the music that i was hearing from europe came on the horizon it really was immediately keying me into these places that i was already experiencing in my own awareness as a young person so it was a perfect coalescence of things at that point but then it happened to be synthesizers that offered the tools to expand and connect into the expression of the spaces and places that i was already immersed in for years growing up so you were hearing things in the space of that silence that you wanted to express in some way exactly i wanted to externalize that again that feeling that was being tapped into and awakened at a young age. And at that point, it wasn't like I'm thinking about it being a meditative experience. There was really no labeling to it. It was just a completely profound sense of what that kind of environment brings to you. And it could be, you know, in a deeply forested area. It could be somewhere out where you're away from all the things that happen in a city or in a town where there's the sound of civilization and the sound of machinery and the sound of things dividing time up all of that went away so somehow it was just very early on it was a very kind of vital piece to me that i was craving and so once it seemed like i could actually like 
paint these sound paintings in a sense. I was already starting to paint and do some visual arts, but when these sound options came in, it just, it was so instant. It's like I already knew what sort of things I wanted to create. There wasn't like, well, what do I do with this? I already felt like I had the momentum towards doing something expressive with it that was internalized already before music for me. I can totally relate to all of that. I remember when I was in high school up here in Vermont, just sitting down on a stump in the middle of the woods, long before I got into meditation or, or things like that, and just uh-huh. sitting, sitting there in the stillness and the silence and hearing this background sound, which I didn't understand, but I could feel in my body, and it felt like I was hearing it somewhere inside of me, and yet it also seemed to be resonating outside of me, but it wasn't a real auditory sound. Yes. And I quickly dropped out of college and and hitchhiked out to San Diego in 1976 and immediately got into meditation and psychedelic exploration and started listening to ambient and electronic music and feeling deeply connected to those inner spaces through this kind of music. Well, that's fascinating right there with just the journey that you took and that you were in San Diego almost precisely when all this was unfolding for me in the late 70s. You know, that's where it was all happening. And so, like you know, you could tap into that infinite infinite expanse of the internal and outer world, you know, sitting at the ocean there as we would do. Mm-hmm. And so some days I would be in the desert, move through the mountains, and then end up watching the sunset at the ocean all in one day. So those kind of combining of the dynamic, to take one of my titles, the aspects of the dynamic stillness from those different environments, you know, was part of definitely being fortunate enough and, you know, blessed by being born in that area, or in your case, having some inner directive literally driving you out there to be there. I mean, that says a lot about the inner need to connect to when something feels so deeply right and vital to our being. And that's the journey I've been on since that time till this very moment, you know, speaking with you, is that it's everything is completely focused and centered around uh, nourishing this place that this experience comes from. So a lot of attention gets placed on the gear and the equipment and the technology and all that, but those maintain their place in the bigger picture for me, which are the, they're really essential and powerful tools to continue to map out and express these inner dimensions that I don't see in any music or any other art form that is so deeply activating of these places where you can bypass the other ways of altering consciousness, which has been, you know, an important piece for our culture to step beyond, you know, what's been delivered up as you're born into this world about what's this reality we're living in and this culture and and your immediate environment. But, you know, using shamanic medicines or whatnot to open those doors has really been a huge piece in our culture, especially in our generation growing up. But for me, the music really becomes that kind of medicine. It becomes that kind of activating, supporting, and life-enhancing experience. And 
that's why I feel like the core of my audience, they naturally, they understand this feeling deeply and the function of the music is it's more than a musical like i'm going to put something on and and get do some housework or something and although that can be part of it too where it supports this environment to go about your day because a lot of the ways that this the music that i create the more ambient and immersive pieces can be put on in loop mode and play all day and night and it supports Almost like as if you could make your walls disappear and bring that environmental support into your living space that we're talking about. Like with, you're tapping into these places, whether you're in Vermont or in deep in the desert of Arizona or sitting at the ocean. So I see a lot of my music going into the big cities, too, and, it, and it's being utilized to help create that sanctuary within your own living environment. Yeah, that's the word sanctuary, creating a sanctuary. And one of the terms that came to me is taking or going on an inner journey, using the music as a vehicle to travel deep within our own inner landscapes. Absolutely, precisely. That's a big piece right there of this kind of music. And so, you know, since, you know, however many years it is since the late 70s, it has completely immersed in creating and living in this world of sound. You know, it's exciting to see how it's found its way into mainstream culture and how more people, even if they're not big meditators, how they understand how that can create this sanctuary of safety for them in their living environment or in their traveling environment, you know, where people are using it on their mobile devices and when they're traveling and just, you know, there's so many ways that it can create and support and bring that feeling out more than ever. So it's really, it's exciting and deeply satisfying and moving for me to be a part of that, you know, that whole world of sound where the world is sound, you know, the Bada Bama. Mm-hmm. And your music especially, I felt, worked for me. I stopped doing the psychedelics in the late 70s, and I found that music, you know, after the initial awakenings, the music served the purpose just as well in that it's like the music didn't have an agenda. It wasn't doing anything yeah. to me. Yeah, it mean, was allowing me to that, unfold. This kind of music, it sets the stage, it sets, it sets the course, but you're the one that's in the flow of this. It's not like it's overriding and pushing you to outer extremes, which the psychedelic experience can be. You know, it, well, that's a whole other story. But again, I, you know, even on one of my albums with Jorge Reyes, while at that time a lot of the focus in the 90s was a lot of shamanic medicine work with groups of people and a lot of my music was getting and continues to be used in those settings but it really a piece i put on right on the album itself was the music is the medicine as a reminder of you know how much potential there is for that that journey aspect is there you know at all times it can be very subtle it could be you know highly engaged and activating the music that i create too has been used in the holotropic breathwork community are you aware of that world Oh yeah, I was. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was involved in in that as well, and that term that you used, music as the medicine, that really expresses it perfectly. I had not put those words together in that way, but 
it's absolutely perfect in the, in this context with this music and particularly the ambient music that you create that very lush vibrant sound that seems to generate and amplify the energy that's already there within us yeah you, that's so beautiful that's so precisely how i would describe it as well or to translate that to new listeners or to emphasize what a lot of people on the planet are tuning into is you know you have to participate with the music it's nothing you need to go to school to learn how to do but it's just it's a that deeper listening and it's that listening that we need to emphasize and keep nourished at this point in time as well because you know the modern world that we're all living in now the noise floor is much higher than it was, you know, even 10 years ago. The level of sound and sound pollution that's happening out there all the time. I mean, you're just being hit on many levels. When I go into, I live outside of Tucson, you know, right in that kind of deeper silent landscape. And going in, I have to really, you know, I mean, I can shift gears quickly, but it's always something I'm paying attention to because I'm, you know, artist of sound and so i can hear and feel those kind of influences or those kind of effects you know just from i mean there is a like a whole lot of material written on sound pollution and just how how we have to stay aware of that too so i feel like my music also supports an organic kind of intake of keeping your sense of sonic perception calibrated and and recalibrated and calibrated once again just by continuing to find the right music and a lot of the uh, music that i do well there's there's three really dynamic sort of styles i work in one would be the pure immersive beatless breathing diaphanous kind of space and then there's the more mentally left and right brain kind of higher stimulation of creative thoughts through this kind of music that's what I call sequencer music. If that's a tool that you use to create these intricate interweave of melodic and rhythmic patterns. And I love that music equally as the diaphanous breathing non-rhythmic material because of how it activates higher states of left and right brain balance and perception where the present moment can just be so radiant and so invigorating and just like the sound of your cells just being really happy and healthy and thriving. That particular piece is where that music is centered. And then there's more of the tribal, ethnic-based music that I do, which draws from more of a sort of a primordial memory, primal mind, primal interface with didgeridoos and indigenous percussion and clay water pots from Mexico or hand drums mixed, but all in a hybrid setting within my way of working where I combine all of that with the electronic world so that the lines in my music lines are completely blurred in that style of music in the ethno-ambient tribal direction where you don't hear where one stops and the other starts. And, you know, that was probably really born into full bloom on my double album from 1988 called Dreamtime Return. My favorite. <laughs> Beautiful. My all-time so, favorite of your work, and it's up the top of my list of all music. That may well have been the first CD that I ever bought. Incredible. Well, I'm really excited to announce that it's at the factory right now, but this is right now, as we speak, is the 30-year anniversary of that 
album's release. That's right. It's 30 years. And um, we've spent three months remastering it and making it sound like it never has on CD because when it first came out on CD, the early mastering tools and the electronic technology at that time to transfer the original sound to the digital medium was not sophisticated as it is now. So my mastering engineer went back and taken it about as far as you can at this point for just revealing a deeper aspect and a more expansive and impactful import of the sound you know, as you hear it. So that's coming out in the month, and I have three sold-out shows in Tucson, and we're hoping to have the CDs there delivered express from the factory to have a release around that. So, But those three worlds, you know, that sort of triangle of balance there, there's, you know, a huge range to pull from. So, for example, I know you talked with Linda Kohanoff, my wife, who's doing, you know, incredible work with, you know, equestrian worlds, and... In her workshops, she uses music a lot in there, too, to help facilitate her teachings and to open up new doors for people. And so we're utilizing a lot of my music within her context of work as well. But the point being there is that a lot of the participants that after a three- or four-day workshop, I'll meet with them and like present it in a metaphor as like filling a prescription for them in terms of where they want to go with the music, what sort of experience they want to enhance or support for themselves once they leave the workshop environment. And so it's a lot of fun to sort of focus in and very inspiring to talk with individuals and say, you know, well, what is it that you're looking to get support from sonically? You know, do you need something that's more activating and helping to jumpstart your creativity or do you want to access deeper into your mythic imagination or do you want to create this very non-intrusive sanctuary of support and sound and so through that kind of interview process you know i'm able to really direct them to the different realms within my music that can be supportive in those different ways so and sometimes it's a combination of all of them you know which is always pleasing for me to see that desire to balance and to recalibrate and to incorporate all those realms within, you know, the listening experience through the day and and night. Yeah, this music has a very powerful effect on our nervous systems. Absolutely. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Steve Roach, a well-known musician in the world of ambient, tribal, and electronic music. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. experience it more i can see from my core of my audience that's been with me for many many years i have my own mail order 
company as well. So fulfillment happens right at my house. So it's still hands-on, direct from me to the listener experience as it's been from the very beginning in the early 80s when I released my first album on a cassette and then onto a vinyl LP. But that time there was a few magazines that were dedicated towards independent music and artists more in the progressive realms. And so at that point you would put out an album and you'd take out an ad in there or get somebody to review it in the magazine. And then two or three weeks later, a letter would come in. Sometimes a check would come or sometimes you'd write them back with, you know, the, whatever the amount was. Point being is that the process would take maybe sometimes a month or longer to deliver the music to, to ears at that time. So now it's so amazing to, I mean, I've had a few albums where I've created them over the course of three or four days. And I published it at Bandcamp, which is a fantastic site for independent artists. And I have a large body of work there. It's like having my own kiosk in a, you know, in a mall or something, in a, you know, a store that's there from just my genre, my brand of music. And I'll create an album, I'll start on it like on a Monday, and by Thursday it could be realized. And then Friday I put it up with the cover and then Saturday then people all around the world are able to experience it. So that's where today's world is just so supportive of, you know, disseminating the music out there instantly. You have somewhere around 150 to 200 albums that you've put out. Right. The Bandcamp page started out as it was centered around my own label called Time Room Editions and Time Room is my studio which is you know, basically a studio house. The entire house is a studio with different rooms set up with the ability to have pieces that are ongoing all the time where I can have one thing happening in this room and then go to the main room and then working on another album there and then the other room has yet another thing happening there because of the nature of letting all of these sounds marinate in the whole process of how they're created. They, they, you just don't want to set it up and then tear it down and start working on another piece, so... But that's a sidebar to what we're speaking. You know, between Amazon and iTunes, you're, you'll find most everything there. And then at my Bandcamp page, it's more focused on my Time Room label, my limited edition releases that end up there directly to the core audience through there. And then I also have some of my other benchmark albums like Dream Time Return or Structures from Silence or mystic chords and sacred spaces, those albums can be accessed from the Bandcamp page as well. When listeners ask, what's the best way to support your music, I always say, well, the, the most direct, pure connection is through Bandcamp, which goes directly to me. Like if you purchase a CD or there's a lot of titles up there that are a name your price so that you can, you know, support the music however it supports yourself and your current financial situation. But a lot of times I'll put up albums for, uh, which is essentially like a free download, but people can, you know, donate 50 cents or $50 or whatever. But that I, I love to do to keep the music flowing out. So it's a great model, Bandcamp, uh, for all kinds of ways for empowering independent artists for a direct support mechanism there. And you can also, you know, I have more of the titles now have the CDs is there to, to get as well. So if you buy a CD from Bandcamp, then you also get the download instantly with it. So that's, you know, an advantage for people that, that want to have both worlds. But meanwhile, you know, most of my music's still in print, and there is a core audience that 
continues to value physical, you know, media, hold, holding something in your hand. So I continue to produce and release music on CD, and the Canadian company is releasing Streamtime on vinyl for the first time since the 80s. So I'll have a double LP of that coming, and then also the piece that's really shocking to some people is that cassettes are, you know, a thing still, and there's a whole cassette culture. And I just sent three orders. He went out yesterday with cassettes because that's a whole other kind of, it's part of the ritual of listening, I think, too, the, the experience of you just put on the music in a player and you sit down or you do something where you just listen to it and it connects you to that function of listening and the ritual of choosing something and putting it in and hitting play and then it comes to the end and then it stops or you put it in loop mode or something. So not unlike a CD, but I think the analog interface between the listener and holding something and then putting it in a device and then having that whole connection to it adds to it. You know, it really creates another level of pure intention of listening, which has been really exciting and fascinating to see. Mm -hmm. And to think that several years ago I tossed out like hundreds and hundreds of cassettes and 10, almost 20 years ago, I donated all my vinyl. Right. I mean, we all, I think all of us have stories of that. And at this point, uh, I mean, people are sending me links to eBay where structures, you know, the original cassettes going for $75 on eBay. I had one of, of those. I had a cassette of structures in silence way yes. back in the day. That was just so many copies of that ended out in the world somewhere, and they're still somewhere, if not in a landfill, you know. <laughs> and there are people who collect these things. I was the opposite. I moved around a lot, and I sure. always gave away everything I had each time I moved because I like to travel with just what I could carry. Well, absolutely. So for the nomadic lifestyle right now, you know, the computer that we hold up to our face and talk into is mind-blowing in terms of how much music you could contain on there. Uh, we could have my whole almost 40 years of work sitting in my phone, you know. Yep. And so I totally understand that piece, too, for folks they don't have the warehouse space to have all their collection of stuff that we collect, whether it's music or furniture or synthesizers. I mean, there's for some of us, you know, the hunter and collector mentality is it's a big one. You know, it's, that's one of my things I have to keep looking at and keeping, you know, under control is my connection to the, again, if we circle back around to these rare instruments and the tools of my art form, you know, that's a hard one. If I see something really rare or that I used to have back in the late 70s, then, you know, it wants to be part of my <laughs> world again. And I found a few of my early synths, not my very synths, but the ones that uh, I used at that time and have come back to life in my current studio. But, yeah, the medium is the medium. It's not, you know, the, the message is coming directly through however you're, choose to hear it, and that's what remains essentially vital to be acknowledging that if it's on your phone or if it's, you know, played on your $15,000 turntable or, you know, a boombox, it's all about being connected to that space and the place that the sound current can bring you to. I mean, I have uh, this little small Bose little mini-wave Bluetooth player that's about 10 inches by 3 inches, and it 
puts out an amazing sound. Just I sort of I put it up somewhere where you really don't even see it, and I'll stream music on it, and it just it emanates from there and fills the space in a really environmentally nondescript kind of way. It's just kind of hidden out, and so that's a really great way to experience the music. And, and the volume level, that is a big piece that while well, we're talking about the impact of the, or the ways of listening and experiencing, but, you know, I'm always sharing that piece, especially like when I was speaking about working with people in Linda's workshops about, I'll do a module in the afternoon talking about deeper listening and how volume levels are so important for how you can utilize the music in different ways. You could have, you know, some of the, what you would think of as not necessarily louder music played at a louder volume. You can, you can experience the immersive music at a more saturating volume level, or you can have it almost at a subliminal level to where it's barely audible, but if you turn it off, all of a sudden it feels like the air has been sucked out of the room. And so I'm always playing with volume levels. And just by the sheer fact that we live in a house or an apartment or wherever we're living, an environment that makes there's sounds happening in that environment from whatever it's doing to support your space, you know, the heating and cooling situation going on and off. You've got 60 cycle hums from the refrigerator. Dogs barking. Yeah, dogs barking is huge everywhere, no matter where. I mean, at one point we moved out way into this amazing ranch outside of Tucson and you're thinking, this is it. Well, this is it indeed. It's it that, you know, the only person that lived within miles of us had four dogs. And so there you are again, you know. Right. But the immersive music at a lower level, it really acts like those noise-canceling headphones that Bose makes in that the moment that you find that sweet spot of volume level in your space, like I have the immersion series where there's 74-minute long spaces that just are designed to play forever, or a dream circle, or those kind of pieces that where there's no beginning and no end, and then when you hit that right volume level, then it just feels like your house, your living space itself becomes recalibrated into an environment that's supporting your own presence there. And the minute the music goes away, then it makes it even more dramatic in terms of when the refrigerator comes on, that's always a big one. And again, just the sounds that are generated in the house, especially during the winter when the, when the heater's cranking and that sort of thing. So it's you know another vital reminder of how we can use music way beyond, you know, the ways that we, I think we can, or sound, I would say. Mm -hmm. I, I think most people are not at all aware of how healing, how profoundly healing music can be because of the way it activates our nervous system, in particular, our parasympathetic nervous system. And earlier you were saying that we don't listen passively exactly, although... In a way, we do. Initially, we just have to really open up and surrender to the music. Exactly. And if you're new to this kind of experience, I've met certain people in situations where they're totally new to what this is all about. And music is usually something that's put on as a distraction or as entertainment or to activate you know, nostalgia circuitry from songs from your youth or all that sort of thing that music and all forms of media can provide as a distraction and as a way to relax and to, you know, 
take a break from things. But that's, a, again, a, you know, a really um, big piece that I keep bringing back to people who are new to it is that it doesn't require something that you need to really have a deep sense of, like, well, I don't understand this. It's just you need to just start to experience it in a way that is natural to them. You know, I like to create a situation to where they feel welcomed with it, and that's why I might start with something, you know, more rhythmic, more like a mid-tempo kind of heartbeat aspect to it. I have a, a lot of music that is working in that sort of mid-70 BPM range, beats per minute range, like in the you know lower resting heart rate kind of space, where it's not completely drifting. You know, there's drift and expansive, but it still has a pulse in there, which is really, you know, a great thing to have. Which a lot of the tribal music, the Aboriginal tribal music that you do, has an element of that in it. Absolutely, and it, and that's part of the unifying nature of the music, is that it's bringing you in alignment with that moment. And if you're with other people, then that, you know, the tribal community is in connection with that together through the connection within the music. So that's where it serves its function in that way. But it's also just the direct peer alignment of feeling your, you know, your nervous system being activated on all these different levels from the beatless space to the rhythmic entrainment that can come with listening to those more trance-like rhythmic elements. And trance, you know, activating, you know, awake. When I use the word trance, I just like to be clear with that, that it's that we're not trying to anesthetize, but you know, enlighten and expand. Mm -hmm. I spent years really spending a lot of time listening to music in those ways. Incredible. That's so great. Just get that sense that you've been nourished through your life by that. I really needed a lot of healing for my nervous system. I had a lot of overstimulation to my nervous system growing up, a lot of chaos, and I just naturally gravitated I found the music, and I, I used it. I used it for many, many years. I don't listen to that music nearly as much anymore, but this morning in particular, I've been going back and listening to a lot of your music over the last couple of weeks, and this morning I got up really early. And Dreamtime Return, I think, is my all-time favorite, but there's another album of yours, a collaboration album you did with Roger King called Dust to Dust, which I, Absolutely, I yeah. love that album. It has such wonderful textures to it. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Steve Roach a well-known musician in the world of ambient, tribal, and electronic music. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. In the background, we're listening to Gone West from Steve Roach's 1998 album, Dust to Dust.
We're listening to Gone West from my guest Steve Roach's 1998 album, Dust to Dust. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. That was a very unique expression of right here, you know, where I live and deep in the what we call Baja, Arizona, and lower Arizona. The feeling on that album is completely about the sensual extremes of the desert experience. And at the same time, there was like an undercurrent that was happening in there. It's kind of a, a story that I was feeling about how we were out here at this point in time in this extreme environment where, you know, the cold that you experience is the heat we experience in terms of, you know, how it can be dangerous and how you have to really adapt your life to it half the year here to function. But I was thinking just not so long ago, 100 years or more, how were people functioning at that point when they were making their way west? When, like, the titles talk about Gone West or... The ghost train, the ghost train was really about how many people came west and came west. And then that was, you know, this consequential moment of, you know, I've been to pioneer cemeteries just out in the middle of nowhere where you see a whole family that came and they just perished, like right, you know, in that area. Like you see the dates, you see the mother, the father, the children, and the babies all, you know, in this pioneer cemetery. And it's those sort of things were really so powerful to me to think about how we just can immediately take for granted the things that we can just drive over to and experience or just where we had lunch yesterday in this beautifully air-conditioned environment while you go outside and it's 115 out you know so a lot of those sort of undercurrents were woven into that album as well and it's just again another way of how i approach creating with different layers of intention inside the music including the titles the titles themselves there's a lot of focus on that and a lot of attention paid to how the titles can be like a key to a certain door that helps to open up your sense of what that piece or that music is about. But without being too specific, but it's another big piece that I think a lot of folks might not think you how much time goes into that, but it's pretty immense in terms of how I'm constantly writing things down and I'll be driving somewhere and something will come up or a combination of words or some poetic interface with two different sort of thought forms of creating a title or something. And so I'm, you know, I'm taking notes on that pretty, pretty constantly. Yeah, I noticed pretty much all your music has very, very evocative titles. And I've noticed that you also have lots of albums where you collaborate with other musicians, and I'm wondering what that was like. Do you meet with them physically and work together that way? Yeah, I'd say on the majority of all the collaborations, there's a fair amount of time where you're in the same space together, initiating and responding with each other to what you're creating. In this kind of setting, it's not as if you're a group or a band going into a recording studio and you set up behind the glass and then there's an engineer out there and then the band or the performers are interfacing together. A certain amount of that happens in the studio, but visually the studio environment is like, let's say it's a big room and it's got all this different kinds of equipment everywhere and synthesizers and drum machines and things that you can all play and interact with together in the space. You know, pieces can start from that place where you're interacting. And then as you start 
the momentum going of the piece, then you'll collaborate in a way to where you're constructing something together conceptually and then you know, you'll be listening to it or hanging out in the studio, and it's like, well, I think I hear this chord or this passage here, and then the artist, while I'm at the board, they'll work something up on whatever their instrument is, and then we'll play that in, or we'll look through. Sometimes, you know, we have years of source material. It's like your own personal sound library that you can draw from. Maybe I have some rhythms that were created from an album in 1998, that are still on file and I can hear an album and say, well, I want to access some aspect of that and I can go to my library and extract something out of there and then completely mutate it into a new form now. And that can be woven into the fabric as well. But, it, you know, if, if that's the case, it's always taken to a place to where it's a new place. It's not recycling what it was back then. So, you know, it's very much a lot of electronic artists work with having a library of material. In my case, my library is all 100% all of my sounds and everything I have in my collection are sounds and rhythms and atmospheres and everything in between that I've been creating for almost 40 years. And so the sort of the modern ambient IDM and beat-driven music, those there's huge libraries that are being you know, created by producers and artists that become part of that fabric for that particular world of music where you can buy gigabytes of just nothing but ambient beats or higher speed kind of IDM, you know, dance-type grooves, and then the music becomes, you know, an assembly of all these different elements that are from libraries from spread out throughout the world. But in my case, sound is so personal and so individually driven from my aesthetic and my priorities of what I need to feel and hear because all the sounds are created from my world. So it sounds like you have easy access to all of these sounds you've created over the many years, that it's almost like having access to language that you can just use in the spur of the moment. Absolutely so. And it's the language that I've invented, essentially, and created this language through my years of being immersed in that, you know, every day, getting up and going to work, basically, doing what I do, you know, for many, many years. And through that, then at this point in my life, for the amount of time I've been in this place, there's just, you know, it's a deep language. I have so much material on hard drives and I record a lot of things, and I still do sometimes. I don't, want, I don't want to turn the computer on, and I have a CD recorder, and I'll just put in a CD and just record a stereo occurrence that's happening. And so I have spools upon spools upon spools of CDRs that have some cryptic thing written on them, a date or some description of what's on there or how many tracks are on there. So... It's a bit overwhelming at this point after having so much material archived, unreleased material that sometimes I'll get in the mood to go in and treat it as my own kind of archaeological dig. You know, and I'll go in and start pulling out CDs from seven years ago or files from 2001. Or, you know, I'll open up a folder that says Dust to Dust and there'll be seven or eight outtakes, you know, tracks that were absolutely great that didn't make the album. So there's always that balance that I have to maintain between going too far down the rabbit hole of your past work and then 
feeling my biggest connection is always to, you know, what's next into the present moment and drawing something that I've not heard before, you know, to life. That's where the main piece comes from. Like, you know, if I'm navigating this vessel into the deep of space or out into the deep of the ocean, I get the most satisfaction from drawing upon what's next and creating and exploring new pathways in my own consciousness of perception and how I'm evolving my use of harmony and my textural understandings of how to create new sounds and then have that balanced with some of the roots material from the past. So there's never a moment where you can't just be completely pulled in and taken in by it. And that's why even today when you first called and I missed the call, I was up till 3.30 3.30 working again on new material. It's just, I work almost in shifts throughout the day. And sometimes I'll even fall asleep at midnight and wake up at 1.30 and something's still percolating in my consciousness and I'll work for another hour and a half or two hours until I reach some resolve with that and then, you know, call it a day or a night at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I can totally relate to that. I, I do similar things. I work in similar ways. Nice. I, I don't like to stay up really late because it throws my rhythms off, but there are times when I'm in creative mode and I've always loved music and I've had music in my bones, but I never took up an instrument. So uh-huh. what, what I've done is I like creating collages nice. of music and also of spoken word and just playing playing with music. I like to play with things. I like to bastardize things. I like fusing things together. I just like doing whatever whatever yeah, comes to me. That is a big piece of what I do, and just the content, in my case, is 100% my content, but that's even something you could look at, how you can, you know, field recordings or, you know, things that you can slow way down. I love, you know, that idea of taking material and see what's down there when you take it down an octave or two, you know? Mm-hmm. So are you doing that in, in the computer? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I had a dream of creating this kind of music myself, but it would have cost far out of my uh, range. Plus, I didn't think I could pull it off because I didn't have any musical training, and I find it inspiring and, and fascinating that you didn't come to this with any musical background or training. That's a big piece, especially now where, you know, People are so empowered by technology and the fact that a lot of folks feel really comfortable taking source material that they didn't create, and I'm not saying that in a negative way, but using it as a way to, to montage and collage these elements together, there's a huge you know, skill there, and there's an aesthetic of that being done really creatively and artistically, and you know, it's a powerful medium. But when I first started out, it's like, well, my media environment of friends and family were like, well, how can you think about doing this at 17 years old or 18 years old when you're not a musician, you know? It's like, well, what makes you a musician? Do you have to go get someone's approval at a college or at a school to be a musician? Or do you become a musician when you make the choice inside of yourself that I want to make music and be a musician? And so that being, I don't know, perhaps... Uh, the confidence that my parents instilled in me. I'm an only child, and so I was very easily, you know, entertained without, you know, an entourage of family members participating in all of that that happens when you're growing up that I would see around me. You know, I was very content to be doing my own thing in my own world. And so that, that as a foundation, was really supportive of 
where I'm at now and how much time I still need to spend alone. And even though I'm, you know, married for almost 30 years, the time that I spend alone, apart from Linda, is pretty immense. You know, there's a lot of time that goes, I mean, we check in all the time, but, you know, I have a separate studio space and I just need that kind of total immersive controlled environment where days can go by where there's no interruptions or no distractions to go deeper and deeper into the work. Mm. But I also felt early on, you know, there's, I just remember still telling myself, you know, there's, there's a place for me in this world. I don't have to knock someone out of their seat to get where I want to be. I'm already where I want to be. I'm just going to start doing it at the level at which I need to do it to feed my soul. And wherever that takes me, then that's where I'm going to go. I wasn't comparing, like, you know, if I was playing a guitar, picking up, you know, a Stratocaster in 1978, I mean, that's a whole other kind of world you're putting yourself into. You know, you're in a, in this world where there's already this highly established pecking order of expectations and stylistic concerns and, you know, people that came before you and, and where do you fit into that and do you want to be like a new version of Jeff Beck or Jimmy Page or... Steve Howe or whoever, you know, none of that really appealed to me at all. And the worlds that circle back around that were already fully activated and alive in me were these worlds that were beyond music. And so I just set out to create my own language, you know, as you were using so perfectly that metaphor for this new world that I want to create. And so I was freed up from not being a musician, you know, by not having all the expectations and all of the kind of protocols that go along when you go to school and you're, you know, there's a lot of hoop jumping for people to be seen as acceptable in the eyes of their music teacher or within the music program. And I could see early on there was an electronic music course at a local college and I thought, well, maybe that's a good way to go get some hands-on and I lasted a day and a half, and I just walked out of the class. I said, this is absolutely going to kill my creative soul. Just the pace at which they were working at, the stuff they were talking about, it was like crawling along at such a pace that, you know, I was just going to have a seizure from not being activated at the level at which my awareness was functioning at, with this desire to do this music. And these guys were, you know, it was... Uh, it just seemed like it was going to take two years to get to where I felt like I was already at in terms of having the creative freedom to just go for it. And now it's there, you know, with soft sense and non-hardware-based equipment, there's a lot of people that can't afford gear or choose not to have it because they're traveling or they don't want to have, you know, a bunch of stuff sitting around all the time and taking up space. You can create, you know, amazing sound-based music within your laptop. And uh, one of my collaborators, Robert Logan, who's a younger guy from London, he's part Hungarian and his father's from London, and they would do these trips through Hungary listening to Magnificent Void and Dreamtime when he was 14, 15 years old. And so he rolled the clock forward, and we ended up doing like two albums together, you know, when he was just like a year ago. But his music, when I first heard it, was created entirely on a laptop, and it was mind-blowing. He just had that connection to sound and the skill to just make it happen no matter what it was made on. It was, you know, it was absolutely impressive. And, you know, I would use the word prodigy with him easily in terms of grasping the understanding of sound design and 
the emotional warmth of the analog world, but applying that completely within the box, as we say, when you're working completely in the computer. So in your case, you know, anything that feels like the next new place without any, you know, judgments on that, just go for it, you know. Mm-hmm. So is there any... It sounds like you are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. And I've yeah. I've never subscribed to the rules, and it's gotten yeah, me into well, lots of trouble. I mean, but... I, yeah, I mean we've both been around <laughs> long enough to uh, write our own rules and to feel really at peace with that, you know? If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Steve Roach, a well-known musician in the world of ambient, tribal, and electronic music. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. In the background, we're listening to Songline from Steve's 1988 album, Dreamtime Return. listen to other music at all? You know, that's a a big question. I really do not listen to a lot of other music because when I'm not making my music and I'm not listening to it, then I'm listening to the non-musical space, that Mm -hmm. current that I draw from, from not having, you know, active or directive listening, you know, sound or music. But in, you know, recent interviews, I've been asked this question and I'll listen to some of my core inspirations, you know, tap back into John Hassel or Klaus Schulze or some of the early electronic material. You know, a lot of that is definitely activating a sense of connection to your roots and that memory realm that that stuff puts you into if you had a lot of experiences with it. David Sylvian, you know, these kind of things. So I'll mm-hmm. listen to that material. Sometimes I'll go back and listen to an album I, I created 25 years ago or 20 years ago to hear, you know, what, what was really happening then. Again, now from this perspective, and I'm listening to music that gets sent to me, like younger, new artists that have been influenced or not by my work, and I'll hear that. And a lot of times I'll hear that in the morning if I'm during breakfast or I'm getting ready to start the day. Then then I have like a span of time there where I can take that in. Yeah, I I totally understand the need for silence. For years, I was a music DJ here playing a wide range of music, but often when I went home, I could not listen to music. 
Right. Silence has, no, just, has always been very like important. A, if you're a chef and you're serving up all this amazing food, for you know, I mean, you just can't go home and just keep eating all this, you know, palette of amazing food all night. You know, you got to take a break. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of taking a break from this now, but for many months of the year, I'll sleep with like the uh, nostalgia for the future, painting in the dark, fade to gray, those kind of albums, those recent deeper textural sound world albums, I'll sleep with those running in loop mode. I'll be working on them during the day, so I'm, I'm in them 24-7 sometimes for months. Then when I leave the house, then I'll be out in the environment, and they're not in the car with me. But while I'm in the house, I'm pretty much you know in this kind of sonic incubator with them, just experiencing them, fine-tuning them at like almost a molecular level, way down in there. And so by sleeping with that music at when I finally say, okay, today I've done all I can do at this active state, then I'll go into the sleep mode and I'll turn it and, you know, have the volume at a very, very, very low level. Otherwise, I'll get activated by it and I won't be able to sleep because I'll be overanalyzing it. But if it's at that certain level to where it's at a, at a hypnagogic level, then that's why those pieces of music delivers that kind of potency. It's very, very high potency for creating stillness and a space that you could have looping for for a week straight because that's what's happening that's how it's being created and that kind of attention to microscopic detail is part of the process with that particular direction in my music i love that notion that you're quite literally infusing yourself into the music Exactly, and that segues to some of the most impactful pieces, including like the title to Structures from Silence. Those pieces, when you hear them play, you're hearing them essentially being created in front of your ears, and that's the time it took to create those. There's no overdubs, there's no coming back. It's a moment in time, a perfect moment in time that's being captured, and so it has parallels with when you see an amazing photograph by Ansel Adams or you know some kind of nature photographer where... They set up and they got all the conditions right. They have, they understand the tools they're using, the film that they're using, and then they just capture those moments that live forever. And that, to me, is, is what I strive for in my music, is to not get into this, well, I'll record this track and then I'll come back next week and then I'll make it better, you know? It's putting everything that you have and who you are at that moment into that experience and then record that. And then that... that um, is translated back on the when you hear it back it's like it becomes a, a living thing that's still alive it's alive in your space so and then if these core pieces that i'm working on like the ones i'm sleeping with those are modeled and shaped and layered over time but the intention there again is that every brush stroke and every piece that is brought in there is 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 another level of being completely present with that piece and, and bringing in an element that once it's there, you couldn't imagine it not being there. But when it's not there, I'm I'm imagining something that wants to be there. Those kind of pieces have a life that evolves over time. And other pieces that I create, I can create it in here. That's complete instantly. I just know intuitively that there's nothing that needs to be considered there. It's, It's a perfect 
transmission and keep it there, you know. But it's taken, you know, a lot of time, a lot of years of experimenting to realize after working on a piece for three weeks that it was perfect three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if there are any pieces of music that are particularly iconic for you? Well, I would say Structures from Silence, the title track, is a piece that speaks to the origins of merging with environmental and inner and outer space that we covered early on. And then um, something from Dreamtime. I mean, if you want to have some of the different points of reference with the music and the different realms that I work in, you know, this morning, when I was listening, I was getting particularly blown away listening to Circular Ceremony, that piece. Incredible, man, that you say that. That piece had so much in it. That's extraordinary that you would tune in to that piece in particular. I'm talking with Steve Roach. He's a well-known musician in the world of ambient, tribal, and electronic music. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. We're listening to Circular Ceremony from Steve's 1988 album, Dreamtime Return.
This is Circular Ceremony from my guest Steve Roach's 1988 album, Dreamtime Return. You know, I got this Grammy nomination thing, which has put a lot of attention onto my work, which has been incredible. It's wonderful. Whether I've already, it's not a matter of winning or losing. I already have felt like I'm a participant of, of a great honor that I'll always have helped draw more people to my work. So that's coming in a couple of weeks, whatever that is. There's a momentum out in the, my record company world about that sort of thing. And so in the meantime, I have these three concerts in Tucson that are sold out in February that I'm working towards. And it's an immense amount of preparation that goes into that. I mean, 15 hours a day for weeks now prepping for that. So I can go out and just have these worlds to access. You know, there's a set flow, but there's also, once I build these sets, it's like a world I can go in and then reconstruct and deconstruct and invent anew, right, with an audience, with participating there with me. So... Circular ceremony, Tonio, it's amazing you would pick that because I still have the original samples in my sampler. The sounds that I used on Dreamtime are still in my Oberheim expander right in here that on my favorite analog synth that I use every day for 30 years. And then I've created a new 2018 version of Circular Ceremony, which for me is like the centerpiece, but it has this new element that takes this kind of bass motif in there that wasn't a, a rhythmic pattern, but it was a, an emotional combination of two or three notes that would cycle around underneath the chords. So I took those notes and then turned that into a very, very mantra beat tempo rhythmic feature that eventually starts merging through the chords of a circular ceremony. So that piece is just so activating. When you hear it, and I'm evolving it with, harmonic chords that breathe in and out with the original atmosphere. And then when this mantra beat comes in, it's very, very deep, pulsing, breathing kind of bass pattern. It's just the combination is so minimal and so essentially simple. But when those things hit together, you just sit back and sigh and almost, well, you cry. Your eyes start watering. You just get this whole full body, mind, spirit activation. So that's just really moving for you to, to emphasize that and acknowledge that circular ceremony because, you know, this will blow you away too, is that I'm releasing a single album that's called Circular Ceremony. And it's going to be a re-realized long version of that piece, which is going to be like a maybe 25 or 30 minute long version of Circular Ceremony. And then I'm doing a, a long expanded version of Looking for Safety from Dreamtime Return as well. So the album will have those two long-form rediscovered pieces just redreamed into now versions of those two pieces. So Circular Ceremony indeed, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> what inspired Circular Ceremony for you? Because for me, that's such a powerful piece and so much in it. Where does that come from inside of you or from outside of you or the confluence of the inside and outside? It's really amazing that you're picking that piece out, the circular ceremony, because that piece and looking for safety were part of this evolving, emerging interface between those states that you get to in the remote silence 
of the environment and nature. And in that case, I had been to Australia. That whole big story is, you know, written in the liner notes. Then when I returned from that absolutely life-changing series of events at that time in 87, flying to Australia as part of a film crew, we're being delivered into the deepest part of the outback and Cape York, visiting these aboriginal sites. Magnificent Gallery is this hundreds of feet long sandstone wall that just had this whole, I mean, it was hard to even find the words besides it being this gallery of presence marked with paintings and, you know, rock art and all of this from a whole span of time, what seemed like before time. So all of that added up to the feelings that became manifest in the Dreamtime Return album. And to search for you know, the right combination of words to express that at this moment is still really impossible. It's just that it was such a combination of these deep, deep epiphanies within my consciousness that I couldn't really assign any words to or any real language to. So it was left to me to move that into expression through the sound and through the um, modes that I was so completely coming into full bloom with at that time. I mean, at that time, I had really gathered the tools that I was so hungry to work with, and then this experience came to go deep into the Australian outback and to document the Aboriginals' presence in these areas from thousands upon thousands of years ago. And somehow the, uh, you know, the I wouldn't say the challenge, but the culmination of all of that was brought to life in those pieces. So in the circular ceremony, there's just a feeling like looking for safety. Uh, now that I'm creating these long-form pieces with you know the evolution of understanding of how that art form works in my music all these years later, I really felt like this year with the 30-year anniversary of Dreamtime, I, I want to redream those two pieces in particular. So it's really moving that you acknowledge circular is that having that feeling because I was able to access uh, the original sources and draw from those with, you know, the DNA from that time with the DNA of who I am evolving into this place now. I love the idea of doing a follow-up with you about that and going more into that story. We will do that. A yeah. story of going to Australia and immersing yourself into that environment because I'm fascinated by that. When I was in high school, I saw the movie Walkabout, which had a tremendously profound effect on me. Uncanny, man, because you're paralleling the things that, I mean, Walkabout and The Last Wave led me to make Dreamtime Return. <laughs> yep, Last Wave too, but Walkabout, wow. Yeah. Talk about an iconic movie in my life. Yes. Well... I've had such a great time talking with you and, and hearing your stories, and I'm very excited to do this again. Thanks. And Linda told me she had a wonderful time speaking with you, and I'm saying the same thing, so this is great. Thank you. Yeah, I had a great time with Linda, and I've had a great time with you, too. And I'm looking forward to follow up with you, and I think I'm going to want to do a follow-up with Linda as well. Outstanding. Thank you. How old are you, by the way? I'm two years younger than you. So you're 60? Yep. I mean, you have a very timeless but youthful feeling to you. And I think about myself that way, but it uh -huh. feels great to connect like this with you. So thank you. Oh, yes. Well, thank you as well. This has been wonderful. Right. Totally wonderful. Okay, well, we'll remain in the 
circular ceremony, as we would say. Yes. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. That was Steve Roach, a well-known ambient and electronic music recording artist who is currently nominated for a Grammy Award coming up two days from today for his album Spiral Revelation, which we are listening to the title track from. That's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.